Let us pray. O Lord, you bid us call to you and promise to answer. Thank you for your gracious thoughts for us. We confess how defeated we become, neglecting our prayer and thinking that we ought to control our fate. Hear us, Lord. Draw us back to you and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. We read again verse 12, and please rise in Jesus' name. Then you will call on me and come to pray to me, and I will listen to you. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. The prophet Jeremiah had the misfortune to watch his beloved nation of Judah taken into captivity by Babylon. He knew it was coming as he had summarized for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. To this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. The Lord sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, but you have not listened or paid attention. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words, this whole land will become a desolation and a ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then somewhere around 600 years before Christ, Jeremiah sent this letter, part of which is in our text today, to those who were exiled in Babylon. Daniel, perhaps, would have been one of those who heard the letter read to him, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the men who famously survived the fiery furnace. And these exiles faced two dangers. First, they were in danger of forgetting God entirely, because, well, now they could assume that God wasn't in control or didn't care about them. And therefore, God made Jeremiah write, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you peace, not disaster, plans to give you hope and a future. And second, they were in danger of listening to false prophets. There was a period of unrest all over the Babylonian Empire, and prophets both in Jerusalem and in Babylon were proclaiming the imminent ending of the exile, evidently believing that Babylon was on the point of a collapse. But God had a longer plan. So at the beginning of that letter, he had Jeremiah write, build houses and settle in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, get married and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease in number. Seek the peace of the city where I have exiled you. Pray to the Lord for that city because when it has peace and prosperity, you will have peace and prosperity. They needed to settle in for the long haul, not act as though they were going to pack up and leave at a moment's notice. And God wanted his people to pray to him. He still does. Because of what he teaches in his word, we pray because God knows us. And this prayer comes out of the knowledge that he is in control and that he hears us. Throughout Jeremiah's prophecies, he warns the people in Jerusalem about the judgment of God. His prophetic work began under King Josiah, who was one of the good kings in Judah's history, and he reformed the worship life of Judah, but their hearts were not converted. 
As soon as King Josiah died, his son Jehoahaz took the throne, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord like all that his fathers had done. And that was only the start. But the line of kings after Josiah drew Israel quickly back into apostasy. They worshipped false gods, even though lip service was paid to the true God. So ecumenicism was the religion of the day. That is, people could worship the true God and whatever other gods were popular at the time. Their worship practice was a mix of true practices and things more acceptable to the people and cultures around them. For this reason, God sent his people into exile in Babylon. They had turned their hearts away from him. They didn't listen to his word, but thought that they knew better. So God proved to them that he was in control. Countless prophets and teachers were around who would tell the people what they wanted to hear, but they were proven wrong. God had said through Moses, What if you ask yourselves, how can we know that the Lord has not spoken that word? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and the thing does not come about and does not come true, the Lord has not spoken that word. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So the false prophets tried to tell the people that they could just live as they wanted, do what they wanted, and no disaster would come. Jeremiah's prophecy was in line with Moses' word, as though he were saying, well, let's wait and see. I'm sure you can see parallels in our world today. Everyone does whatever is right in his own eyes. And certainly there are churches where they claim to believe the Bible, and yet... In practice, they do things clearly contrary to the Bible. Let that motivate you to look at your own heart. What parts of God's word do you prefer to avoid or ignore? What parts do you downplay, acting as though they aren't as important or serious as other parts? I'll tell you, anytime we humans try to downplay a part of God's word in this way, it's because we're trying to justify ourselves and hold on to our own sin. We want to be in control. We want to determine our own lives. But God is in control. We cannot rely on ourselves. Notice how God teaches you that throughout your life. Notice how much happens that's outside of your control. So let the lesson be clear. You have a desperate need. You are lost in your sin. You are doomed to death. You need help. To Israel in exile, God's word through Jeremiah taught this too. And a false prophet named Hananiah denied Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years that Israel would be held captive and instead said, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. So God sent Jeremiah back to him to say, Thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. The judgment was proven harsher than men expected to prove to them that they needed help. God provides it. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And the Hebrew text does emphasize that word, I. You might be familiar with other languages, such as Spanish, where we don't always need to say the pronoun. In English, we always say the pronouns before our words. But in other languages, you don't have to. Hebrew is one of those where you don't have to say that pronoun. And when it is said, it's said for emphasis. And here the Hebrew has that word, anochi. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. In the midst of all the warnings and doom in Jeremiah's prophecies, the message of hope shines through. And the meaning should be clear. Recognize in yourself that you have nothing but need and that in God alone there is hope. Beware turning any of God's promises into license. The devil famously tempted Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil quoted Psalm 91, but left out a phrase. Those verses in full read, yes, he will give a command to his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And that phrase, to guard you in all your ways, is what the devil left out. And that phrase doesn't mean wherever you decide to go or whatever you decide to do. It means in the normal course of your life as a child of God. In other words, God has promised to care for you and defend you during your Christian life according to his plan and purpose. And therefore, Jesus responded to the devil, again it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. Testing is the opposite of believing. If you were to test God, you would be putting himself, him below yourself. The teacher is the one who administers the test to the students, not vice versa. The parent is to test the knowledge and ability of his children, not vice versa. Instead of testing God, believe in him. Trust that he will do what he has promised, and that he will be with you, even though it looks like all outward appearances prove that he has failed you and left you. Turn back to his word then and hear him. That period of exile would have an effect on God's people. The blessedness of this captivity would lie in its thoroughly uprooting their idolatry, emptying their soul of all self-righteous reliance on the outward forms of religion and casting them only and wholly upon the Lord their God. In other words, they would be led to a true conversion of the hearts, not only to an outward form of religion. And therefore, God asks you to pray because he hears us. He said this through Jeremiah, Then you will call on me and come to pray to me, and I will listen to you. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from your exile. I think Jesus might have been restating these promises when he said, Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And I like how the Evangelical Heritage Version emphasizes the original grammar that's there in those words, where persistence is insisted upon. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. That's the action of a heart that knows the promise of God. When God teaches his people to pray, however, he always teaches them to pray for things that they wouldn't think to do on their own. 
For instance, Jeremiah told the exiles, Seek the peace of the city where I have exiled you. Pray to the Lord for that city, because when it has peace and prosperity, you will have peace and prosperity. Their natural prayer would be against that city that held them captive in their exile. In the same way, St. Paul instructed Timothy, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And keep in mind that at the time that he wrote this, the one king who ruled over much of the known world was Emperor Nero, who killed Christians and persecuted the church. And yet he was to be prayed for. If God's people were to pray for Nero or Nebuchadnezzar, shouldn't we pray for our leaders today, however we feel about their policies and their positions? Think further of how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We therefore give up any self-righteousness, any personal ideas of how God should reign in the world, any desire to have our own will done. We only ask God then for our daily bread, for our trespasses to be forgiven, for his leadership away from temptation and in deliverance from evil. In other words, prayer sets all the control away from our hands and into God's. Take it to the Lord in prayer as we sing in one popular hymn. Prayer then comes out of this renewed relationship God has fashioned for us in Jesus. Because he has promised to hear us, we can pray. He not only listens like a good counselor, but he provides the answer. He gives us what is needed. Think of those many thousands of people in Babylon led to pray to God. Daniel was one such. In his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Think of the effect that those prayers must have had. God promised that he would listen to those who called on him with all their heart. He promised that those who sought him would find him. He promised that he would restore those whom he had broken. Thomas Aquinas called this the dignity of causation. Stubborn human wills wonder what good prayer will do if God already knows what he's going to do anyway. And on the other hand, if God is changeable, is that a God that we really want? But what Aquinas meant by the dignity of causation was that God so wants to have a relationship with us that he wants us to ask him so that he can answer us. And this is something so much different from simply giving us what we need. This causes us to have a conversation with God. It causes us to trust in him more. It causes us to look to him when we have need. And prayer does have effects. Because of the prayers of Daniel and the many others, God was present with them. And he sustained them until he did bring them back 70 years later. He prepared their land for their return. He repositioned all things geographically and historically so that the promised land was a land prepared for the fulfillment of God's greatest promise, the coming of the Messiah. Because of the exile and because God sustained the faith of those in exile until he returned them, all things were prepared some 400 years later for the birth of a baby in Bethlehem under the rulership of a different tyrant, this time from the Mediterranean peninsula of Italy. And through the prayers of the faithful, God prepared the hearts of the nations also for the gospel. 
Some Israelites remained in the nations and would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for certain feasts and festivals, such as Pentecost. Some 30 years after the birth of that baby in Bethlehem, after he had grown into a man and died and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, many Israelite people from the nations were there and heard the spirit-breathed message that salvation was accomplished. They heard in their own languages that Jesus was the Son of God who had died for the sins of the world, who rose from the dead to promise them eternal life, and in one day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. And not just ethnic Jews, but Gentiles were influenced by the prayers and teaching of the exiles. When that baby was born, Gentile scholars came traveling hundreds of miles to visit him, to lay their gifts at his feet and to worship him. They knew the expectation of God's promise because the word had been out among them. Consider this life now, a life of exile. We sojourn here because heaven is my home, as we sing in another popular hymn. But at the same time, we settle in for the long haul. We aren't told whether our period of exile here will be 70 years or 700 years or 7,000 years. Instead, we are told, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So we're also told to pray for our neighbors, our leaders, our enemies. And in the meantime, not to become idle and to ignore this life. But as St. Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. It's a strange tension for us that we live here and also in heaven. But that's because we're waiting for that time when Jesus will return and take us to our perfect home. But in the meantime, he is with us and he is working through us. I doubt many of those exiles could see much purpose in their 70 years in exile. We have the benefit of hindsight to see some of the effects, but even we can't see everything God accomplished during that time. Who knows what God might be doing through your own difficult circumstances? Look what he did through the darkest three hours of earth's history when his son died on the cross. Through that, he accomplished the salvation of the entire world. Yes, during your difficult times, all you really need is someone to hear you. And that's what God promises. He listens to your complaints, or he listens to his Holy Spirit who groans on your behalf with sighs too deep for words. You don't need to know all his purposes now. You'll want to know. You'll weep and mourn. He hears that, and he answers. And his promise endures for you in Jesus, his son, your brother, who himself taught you to pray to your heavenly Father. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.